Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. At Connecticut Public, we work with some very talented interns who bring fresh ideas, insights, and angles to all of our shows, including where we live. Joey Morgan is one of our current interns, and he pitched an idea about declining college enrollment and the value of college degrees today. Here's Joey in his own words. I do know that college education is valuable, but I also wonder how valuable it really is. We ask ourselves, will I ever get a return on my investment? Will I actually be able to pay off all of my student loans? Is college worth it? These are some of the questions that create the college conversation. In high school, they help us decide if college really is the next step. For me, these questions are ones that I didn't actually ask myself until I had already finished an entire year of college. As a first-generation student, I pretty much had to navigate the experience on my own. The self-guided journey after high school took me from a big state university to a community college, then to a regional university where I ultimately got my bachelor's degree. The journey was not that smooth, though. After my first year of college, I dropped out, and I felt like a failure. I took two years off because I needed a break to have intentional conversations with myself about what to do next and about how I could get the most out of my college experience. It's time to approach the college conversation differently. We need to look at the new types of students that are out there, and we need to figure out what they need in order to be successful. I started my college experience feeling like a number, but I ended it feeling like a successful student because somewhere along my journey, I was able to find the resources that I needed, and I realized that college is worth it. So today, we're asking the question, is college still worth it? Later, we'll hear about some trends in college enrollment from the Brookings Institution and the Lumina Foundation. But first up, high school counselors can play a critical role in ensuring that students are ready and prepared for their next steps after graduation. And joining us now to talk about all of that is Steve Schneider. He's a high school counselor at Sheboygan South High School in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Thank you so much, Steve, for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Catherine. And for our listeners, let us know what your experience was like. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Steve, I want to start by asking, you know, how are school counselors and students conversing today about college or post-high school education in general? Um, Well, thanks for asking that question, Catherine. It's pretty loaded. It is. Um, It is. What does that look like today? Yeah. So I would imagine it might look a little different from school to school. However, I think generally speaking, school counselors understand that really the role, one of the roles that we play with students, especially at the high school level, although this does trickle down into middle school level as well, is is helping young people understand who they are uh, and where their interests lie, what are the things that they 
um, that they get excited about so that we can begin the process of talking through, okay, entering into your young adult life, what kinds of things, what kinds of opportunities can we put in front of you while we have you in the PK-12 system? And what are your options once you leave us? Uh, and being really frank and really open about all the options are open. We really need to help to make the right match for each individual student. So that tends to be the conversation that school counselors are having with with young people. Well, and much like the question, I think the process is also very loaded as well because there are so many elements to this. You know, asking a young person to figure that out at at that age is is very difficult. So. What kinds of resources do you give to students to help them sort of learn and understand that they do have different options in front of them? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, like you said, we could spend we could spend three days on the process. Probably. Yes, we can. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the resources really. There's nothing uber creative about the resources. Everything's out there, right? It's just a matter of helping students understand a what it is they might be looking for, and then B, can we best connect them with the resources that exist that might help them make an informed choice? So when the conversation with students evolves around, okay, you're 16, what are you thinking right now? Knowing, and we're pretty open with them as well, right? It's a very normal thing for plans to change. So at the age of 16, what's the plan now? Once they're able to articulate that, and we work with them on helping them to articulate a plan, um, then it turns into, okay, if if that's the idea or if that's the thought you're having right now, then what are the concrete things that, that would lead you towards that? Is that going to be a two-year technical college diploma that you could get? Is that going to be a one-year tech degree? Is that going to be on-the-job experience through an apprenticeship? Is that going to be a four-year college, four-year degree, right? So we really work with students to say, we, we want to better understand you. And then let's talk about, you know, all the options. And we can connect you to all the resources that exist out there for four-year colleges and two-year techs. And But before we do that, it's really important to validate the thought or the plan that a student's having and try not to predict uh, or presume that there's one track that we're going to present to kids. And I think at your school, you have something called the junior lead uh, parent conferences. Is that, can you tell us about that? Is that related to what you're talking about is having those conversations with each other and being frank about, about the, the options and opportunities for these students? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's one of our um, kind of a keystone activity for, for our department. Um, so in the junior, in fact, we're right in the throes of it right now, right after this show, I'll be having one with a student um, and his parent. Uh, so we get one-on-one -on -one conversations with our juniors, with parents invited to attend. And we're also happy to say we get about between 60 and 70% parent involvement, which is really high. Um, and we'll meet with them for about 45 minutes. The student leads the conversation. So we have them do a little bit of work uh, ahead of time to prepare for the meeting, and then they they lead the meeting at that point. So what is it that they're interested in in pursuing? And we found value in having the parent there because this is not just a, I mean, it's a family decision oftentimes, especially if it involves post-secondary education. Um, but also sometimes we have 
parents who do assume or presume one path for their kid. And when their when their child indicates, I really want to be, um, I want to go into the construction trades. What are the options there? Uh, and and we're able to validate that choice by by putting in front of the entire family. Here are all the really val- valid pathways you could take to get into the skilled trades. Like this is not a, we don't want this to be by accident or, or uh, by happen chance. Let's be really deliberate about this so we can give you the most advantage we possibly can to make whatever that plan is a reality. And some families, that's very helpful. This conversation is super helpful with first-generation students that are expressing an interest in going on to college uh, because they don't have family support that understands the system. So we find that in these conversations, it's not just attaching the student to resources, but we're actually connecting the entire family to resources. So we find it's an extremely valuable experience. Right, and it sounds also very collaborative and to bring everyone sort of onto the table here. And I'm curious to hear when you are having these conversations with students and and their parents, is there any tension or disagreement between students and their parents? And, and how do you go about navigating that? There is on occasion. Um, what we have found is that kids and parents talk a lot about this, um, probably more than what the student leads on. <clears throat> However, there is occasion where a parent will say, you know, I I want my child to go on to a four-year uh, college. And the student is saying, I really don't have interest in doing that. Um, the navigation for that is gentle, <laughs> is, the, is the right term, right? Sure, yeah. Uh, we we want to validate the student. I mean, it is going to be their future. And so trying to impress on the parent that Although we might have particular ideas of and ways that we think uh, a young person should approach their entry into young adulthood, um, there are there are multiple ways to do this. And what we have found is once we explain to parents and and are able to show them that an alternative pathway to a four year college degree can be very lucrative uh, and very cost effective and get your son or daughter to the same place or to the place that they're indicating they wanna be. We found that oftentimes it's just parents are misinformed about what all the other options are. And so they think the only option is four year. So once we're able to kind of share out, look, there there are multiple ways to approach this. Even for the same, like if we're talking the same career, um, nursing is a great example. There are so many different levels of education that can get a student into the nursing field that uh, that and parents aren't aware. They just assume it's a four-year degree. Well, not necessarily. It could be a two-year degree. We could start with a CNA certification. These are all things that as we explain it to parents and, and talk through it and say, your son or daughter might not be interested or may not be ready for a four-year degree program, but they can certainly still accomplish great things with a two-year associate degree or a technical degree or even a certification. So actually following up with what you just said, because I think there is still a collective societal belief that one option is better than the other. And with that in mind, that can really affect a person's choice. So you mentioned you know, going to a four-year college 
versus going into military service versus technical school, trade schools. You know, can you speak to that? Is that something that you're still seeing today? It is, but less. Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, we talk ROI, um, and I think school counselors are keenly in tune to the rising costs of, of education. Uh, and it, because we work every day with families who struggle with finances and and are really caught in this uh, feeling of inability to fulfill their child's wishes because they can't afford, you know, a four-year college degree. Uh, and so we we do get into, um, you know, we don't, I guess we don't talk about ROI, we don't talk about it that way, but uh, certainly do deal a lot with families who uh, might be, um, you know, our, our school is 60% free and reduced. So we're dealing with families who, who don't have a lot of financial um, extra finances sitting around to cover costs for education. Uh, and so part of the conversation turns into, uh, are there alternative ways to still get to a specific career that might not cost as much as uh, the what has historically been the default choice, right? Four-year college, right. just go to college and, and you'll figure it out. And we're finding now that, that that's not an affordable exploration anymore. Uh, so working with kids uh, and students when they're still 16, which seems awfully young to be asking them to make some of these choices, but it's almost out of necessity to say, okay, we, there are ways still to get you where you want to go that might not involve, uh, you know, 60, 80,000, $100,000. Um, but we have to, we have to make those options available to you if they help you understand all those options. So that conversation happens more now than it did, I would say, even 15 years ago. Right. And I know, like you said, you're in the throes now, and I am sure a lot of students are are currently having this conversation with their school counselors as well here in Connecticut. I want to take a moment to take a quick call from Pam, who is in Waterford. Pam, you are on the air. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to say my two youngest sons are now adult men working, but at the time they were in high school. It was pretty hard to get the attention of the counselors. They, I don't know, were too busy or when I'd call to try to get them an AP class, it would be, oh, you know, no, and there's no filled up or whatever. So I don't know what exactly was going on with the counseling, but it wasn't really there for my kids. And with one kid, uh, a a friend told me about this lady that was doing career counseling because my son Michael was kind of all over the place, interested in and eagle scouting and all kinds of things. So we hired this lady, and he determined that uh, he wanted to be an architect. There were some in our family, and I thought, oh, this kid, he can't sit still. He'll never be able to do it. But, you know, I wanted him to – I said, you know, look, we'll look at colleges, and he chose one, and he went to University of Philadelphia, and um, next thing you know, he got the degree, he did the internship. He couldn't sit still at all at the desk. So guess what? He worked for a company that did kitchens and bathrooms, and it was a moderate-sized company. It is. He still works there all these years later. And you know what? He's great at it. He runs around as a project manager. Actually, he's promoted now to the manager of the project managers. And he found his niche, you know. So I think the college experience, even though it was expensive and he didn't really do exactly what it was, 
it was so good for him to sort of find that out about himself. But this lady's guidance was just impeccable. And with my other son, same thing. He thought he wanted to be a dentist. He ended up in an engineering program that was biomedical engineering. He loved the engineering. So he's doing that now. So I don't know. I think as parents, we need to offer other options for kids to find out rather than just high school counseling, because I don't think the services are there. Well, thank you so much, Pam, for sharing that story and and happy to hear that both of your sons end up finding something that they love to do, which we know is very, very difficult. And and so, Steve, I wonder if that's with, with Pam's story, if that's something that you hear a lot, because we do also want to talk about how students do have to pivot. You know, that's that's what life does. And and there's probably a lot of very complicated emotions when when that's happening, because maybe they feel like they failed. You know, they didn't go on the path that they thought they were supposed to go on. So. So, Steve, how do you navigate these conversations with your students and their families? Sure. Um, I think I, I think it's pretty. Uh, it's normal, right, as, as Pam mentioned, that things change, you experience things in different ways. And suddenly you you see something that maybe you, you either weren't aware existed, or you, you just never really paid attention to that suddenly catches you at the right time. And and you pivot. And we're pretty clear with families that that's a normal occurrence, right? Especially when we're talking with young people uh, to say, hey, we're not asking you to sign a contract for what you're going to do for the next, you know, two, three, four, five, six years. We're simply asking you <clears throat> to think about it and let's pick a direction to start. Um, when you think about pivoting, right, it's much easier to, to pivot to a new direction when you're already moving than it is to be at a standstill, right? So what we're trying to avoid <clears throat> is students who get to the end of high school who've never really thought about what the next step is or were too intimidated to, to take any action. We're really just promoting, we, we want you to take a step, right? We, we talk about the first step after high school. We want you to take that first step with confidence, knowing that you might pivot from that first step. And that's absolutely fine. And, and what we would say would be, quote, normal. Uh, so you might start uh, in a in even at a two-year associate's degree level. And after one year, you might decide, you know what, I really, I'm committed to this now. I'm going to move on to a four-year degree. I will transfer to a four-year school. And the reverse could be uh, could be true as well. Or I'm going to go directly into the workforce. And then once I've been working for a couple of years, I'm going to see some some career opportunities that that might require me to go back to school. And that's fine, right? That's the, that's the normal pathway of life. And so we try to encourage students and families to be comfortable with the idea that you are we are asking you to make a first step just to get you going in a direction. But the the options don't end, right? Those the options and resources available to you and the choices exist throughout your young adult life, throughout adulthood for that matter. Uh, and pivoting is a really normal occurrence. So um I think that that's the nature of the conversation is to say we're, we're really just trying to help you to make that first step with confidence, knowing you might encounter uh, different things or decide differently once you get down this pathway for a little bit. 
Right, and I have a I have a final question for you related to what you just said. You know, the, being able to help the student make the first step um, in the first place and and get to the pivoting part, if the pivoting part happens, is you know what happens when a student says, "I have no idea what I want to do." So, what does that look like? Yeah, that's always uh, that you know, more. That's I guess as common as you might anticipate, Catherine. Sure. Uh, the young person who sits and says, "I don't know." Um, so we begin the process of questioning. Okay, well, let's start with what What do you know you don't want to do? Because um, if we can take the full pie and at least eliminate a good chunk of it, uh, we can begin to help you to focus in on, okay, what are the things at least you're willing to consider? And let's start there. It's a slower process. It takes a little more time. Uh, and and it's very likely that student might not be able to to profess exactly what they want to do upon graduation. But we try really hard to, to to make sure, and Joey mentioned it in his opening segment, we don't want kids to feel like a failure because they don't have a, you know a, everything in order at graduation. We want to make sure that you at least understand what the options are. And if you haven't made a choice yet, we get that too, right? So let's just help you make this first step with some confidence. Even if it's not going to be your final destination, that is not failure. That's just you're not ready to make a decision yet. Right. So that conversation is really about making sure kids do not feel like a failure because they're not able to articulate exactly what they want to do, because that's not realistic. Well, what you just said actually makes me feel better as an adult. So <laughs> I appreciate your thoughts and sharing your experience with us today. You've been listening to uh, Steve Schneider, who's a high school counselor at Sheboygan South High School in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Thank you so much, Steve, for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me, Catherine. Coming up next, we hear from Catherine Meyer from the Brookings Institution on college enrollment trends and the intention action gap. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. College enrollment is on a decline. This is according to the Brookings Institution. From 2010 to 2021, undergraduate enrollment dropped by 15%. The pandemic magnified this trend as a perceived value of a degree began to shift. Since 2022, Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and other states have removed degree requirements for most state jobs. And this past June, Connecticut passed a bill to look into possibly eliminating degree requirements for certain state employment positions. That's from the Connecticut General Assembly. This shift away from degree requirements is just one of several trends making us rethink the value of a college degree today. And joining us now is Catherine Meyer, a fellow in governance studies and higher education researcher at the Brookings Institution. Thank you so much, Catherine, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation. Let us know if you have anything you'd like to share about your experience, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Catherine, I want to ask you to respond to what we heard from Steve so far about how students are navigating the college conversation. You know, anything that jumped out to you? Well, I think just to echo the point about how important it is to have, you know, high school students have access to a counselor. We know not all students have that access. You know, only about 80% of high schools even have a counselor, but 
34% of high schools have an adequate number of counselors, you know, enough counselors for how many students are enrolled. So I think there's some clear policy evidence that investing in more counselors and just expanding the number of students who can have those one-on-one -on -one conversations would be really impactful in helping students evaluate what the right next step is going to be. So you work with a lot of data. So what do we know about the declining college enrollment and also the value of college degrees? So as you mentioned, we've seen these trends of fewer and fewer students enrolling in college and that the overall college enrollment numbers were on a decline for a little bit and then were rapidly accelerated by the pandemic. That was really driven by declines in enrollment in two-year colleges and community colleges, though there were also declines in the four-year sector. And while more students are enrolling in college now, we're nowhere near where we were at the pre-pandemic levels. And that's a problem because we think about a workforce that needs highly educated workers. They need individuals who have some post-secondary education. I think a point that Steve and the caller earlier was making is that that doesn't have to be a four-year degree. There are plenty of jobs and good jobs for people who get an associate's degree or a series of certificates that they stack together. But students do need some form of post-secondary training, and we simply aren't educating enough people to meet that labor force demand. And so for, for those of us who don't know why the enrollment is declining, can you describe some of the root causes? It depends a little bit by student and by time. Of course, in the middle of the pandemic, we can expect a lot of that declining enrollment just came out of uncertainty. Students didn't know what was going on. There was a lot of public health concerns about you know going off to college and leaving home. And so it's not surprising that there were declines in enrollment as part of that. There was also a lot of financial uncertainty early on in the pandemic. And for a lot of students, this was a pure affordability concern. That may have been amplified by the pandemic, but that's always been a concern for students, how they can afford college and how they can work it into their budget today, as well as their lifelong budget if they have to take out loans or, you know, make a substantial investment in, in paying for their tuition. So affordability is always a concern, um, as well as just information and students understanding what the options are for them. Um, and, and information about what affordability actually looks like, you know, understanding what financial aid is available to them at the federal level, certainly, but also at the state and what kind of institutional aid is often available. And we, we're talking about, too, how there's a changing perception of, of the value of a college degree. And you wrote an article called The Case for College, Promising Solutions to Reverse College Enrollment Declines. And you wrote in it that college graduates overwhelmingly believe that college is a good uh, or was a good personal investment. But college enrollment, as we are talking about, is still declining. So can you talk about this disconnect between sort of the quote, quote, real value of a college degree and the perceived value of a college degree? That's right. There's a bit of a perception uh, challenge when it comes to the returns to college. We know that on average, college pays off. You can look at different levels of education and the more education you get, the higher light your lifelong learning uh, earnings are going to be. I suppose lifelong learning as well. Um, and there are just a host of other good outcomes that people experience, better health, better employment, stability, better hours, you know, more stability in their weekly schedules with sort of higher levels of education. But there is also a lot of variation. You know, it's not certain that everybody is going to hit the average return to a degree. And there are a lot of factors that play into what 
value people are going to get from that degree. And part of it is sort of what they end up studying and how that aligns with a career. And a lot of that is the completion rate. You know, individuals who go to college and complete college absolutely get a really strong financial return on that investment. But a lot of students don't complete college. Um, and those students are making a substantial financial investment, but not gaining any of the benefits of that education when they go out of the workforce. And so those students are really not getting a good return on that investment. And so there needs to be in this conversation, not just a focus on enrollment, but a focus on how we can support students to complete the degrees that they seek out. I want to take a quick call from Brad, who's calling in from Windsor. Brad, you are on the air. Hi there, Catherine. Thank you for taking the call. Um, quickly, the reason I wanted to um, follow it up with the conversations. Um, I think that one of the things we need to see in high school are courses in critical thinking. Um, let's take the perspective of careers are important that are, can come through college, but let's look at that with the perspective of skipping college but at least being able to understand the world in a better way and critical thinking is is just too important to avoid. Um, and I would only add the second thing is I'm older and when I graduated from BU, great education, understood philosophy of life and so on and so on, graduated as a biologist, but soon left the field to take a wandering career um, ending in retirement after being uh, a successful contractor. So, and now I'm writing. So you never know where you're going. Well, thank you so much, Brad, for sharing that story. And once again, really happy to hear that your experiences all worked out. And I feel like the crux here is also sharing that, you know, your path is not always a straight shot. You're going to take so many left turns and U-turns and 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 right turns. And, and on that note too, Catherine, I want to talk about you know, we've been talking a lot about the different kinds of options that people can have. So can you talk about sort of the enrollment trends that are different perhaps among two-year institutions, four-year institutions, community colleges, and state universities? Uh, absolutely. So as I mentioned, the biggest decline in enrollment during the pandemic really came in the two-year sector. The students who weren't enrolling would have, but for the pandemic, ended up enrolled in a community college. Um, and we see, you know, that a lot of students begin their college education at a community college. Community colleges are just tremendous potential engines of mobility. Um, when students have the guidance to again, get through those programs and complete them um, and get connected to really valuable labor force opportunities. You know, unfortunately completion rates are fairly low at community colleges as well. Um, and I, I think connecting back to the story that Joey shared at the beginning, even though often students start at a community college intending to ultimately transfer to a four-year college, um, transfer rates are particularly low. The Department of Education put out some statistics this week that you know 80% of students plan to transfer from community college to a four-year program, but only about 16% of them actually do. Um, so there's a tremendous, you know, intention and action gap there when it comes to students planning out their trends. 
when we think about four-year colleges, you know, there are generally uh, smaller declines in enrollment, but that varies quite a bit. You know, there's a lot of variance within the four-year sector in the selectivity of institutions. And so when we think about the, the highly to the moderately selective four-year public flagships or the private institutions, those colleges haven't seen nearly as much of an enrollment decline as many of the more regional uh, or open access four years uh, have seen a little bit of decline as well. And with with that, too, you know, we, we talk about there are so many different kinds of backgrounds of students that are coming into wanting to go to college or wanting to go to some sort of institution. Uh, we have Elizabeth from Manchester who sent us an email sharing that part-time students are a forgotten group. Most of the time, they're not eligible for scholarships, and there's usually not a lot of financial aid available to them either. More needs to be done to help this group of students. Uh, Catherine, is this is this an area that you're seeing as well where part-time students do have a harder time to get those benefits or to get support in order to continue their, their education? I couldn't agree more. We absolutely need more investment in supporting students in going to college in a way that works for them. I think the biggest thing that we're going through right now in higher education policy and planning and as states and the federal government are thinking about the next step is Again, finding a way to make college fit into students' lives instead of trying to make students fit into a certain college mold. We need to find a way to structure colleges so that classes are offered more on the evenings and the weekends so that students can continue working and continue supporting their family while they gain skills as well. Uh, we need to change financial aid policy so that students are eligible for more financial aid. You know, some of this can be at the federal level, but there's a lot that states can do to make sure that their financial aid programs and their scholarship initiatives are also available to students who are attending part time, to students who are enrolling, you know, not immediately after high school, but have taken a few years into the workforce and are then going back to college, that those students have access to state scholarship funds. Um, and so again, just the general theme is to design college and college support so that it fits into the students' lives instead of trying to force students into the mold of college. Well, and you mentioned earlier, too, that there are so many reasons why the enrollment is continuing to decline. And I want to mention, too, in terms of race and economic status, which groups are most impacted by declining college enrollment? You know, And when we say impacted by, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Well, when we look at just the number of students who, um, you know, in total enrollment numbers and sort of how they compare uh, to a couple of years ago, we've seen the largest declines, you know, for Black students, for Native American students, uh, for Hispanic students. Um, and so there are some racial differences in the types of students whose enrollment has declined more than uh, more than other students. There's also a tremendous gender gap in enrollment that has really only widened over time. Um, you know, it's something like 70% uh, of female students are going to college immediately after high school compared to about 55% of male students are going to college immediately after high school. That's a huge gap. Um, and where we see racial differences, they're sort of concentrated among men within those racial groups where the enrollment declines have been. Um, and I think that's, you know, speaking to part of this is, you know, different academic experiences during high school. Um, and we need to think about how do we invest in a K-12 system that is setting all students up for success in post-secondary and helping all students 
see a path to college that makes sense for them and aligns with their interests. And so earlier we talked a little bit about first-generation students and our, our intern Joey shared that he is a first-gen student. So can you speak to their experience versus continuation generation students and understand how a college education is going to pay off? Absolutely. Well, as a first-generation college student myself, I, I study this in a bit of me-search, we like to say. Love that. Um, I've, I've always wanted to, you know, reflect on my experiences, uh, which was even a very privileged experience as a first-generation student. I had tremendous high school counseling support. I went to a well-resourced institution. Uh, everything worked out fine, but I've always wanted to understand how we can support first-generation students. And, and when we think about it, it's we often use this term of the hidden curriculum. There is a lot of information that students just don't know they don't know. Uh, and that can come in the form of not knowing about how financial aid forms get processed or not knowing how to navigate verification of your financial aid information, which is a very burdensome process that uh, primarily falls as a burden on low-income families. Uh, they don't understand that you can ask for re-review of your financial aid. Um, there's just so much information that is hidden that when you have a parent or an adult in your life and your family who has gone to college, they can give you the playbook. And so students who have that parent or, or that trusted adult in their life who's given them the playbook, hit the ground running on college uh, a little bit ahead. They know to go to office hours uh, as a networking activity, um, not just because they have a question about the class. And so the more that we can help provide mentorship and guidance to first-generation students to give them access to that playbook as well, the better we are going to be able to equalize their outcomes. So I've got a final question for you here. You know, can you talk about, too, the long and short-term solutions to declining college enrollment sort of in terms of policies and social slash cultural conversations? Right. So I think both long and short term, we do need to be talking about the the perception versus the reality. Because I think we started off, you know, our conversation talking about how there is declining public support for higher education. Um, and that's not something that bears out in the data, but I don't want to discount the fact that many individuals live that experience of feeling that college isn't worth it or it's not paying off for them. And so I think we need to highlight the returns to college and how we're not recommending a one-size-fits-all approach, um, but having these conversations about how there are many paths to and through college that are going to pay off and benefit students. Um, and it's just all about finding the right fit, you know, really tying back to Steve's comments about finding what's going to be the good fit for them. You know, in the short term, I'm always going to be advocating for increasing financial aid and financial support for students. That is really the often the biggest barrier. You know, we can run, and I've certainly run myself and colleagues have interventions to give students more information and get them to apply to more colleges um, and, and help them through that process. But without an investment in financial aid to help them get to that college and get through that college, um, it's, it's an uphill battle. There's only so much information can do. So short-term things like adjusting safe uh, financial aid programs to expand access to different populations. Um, and then, you know, things like increasing the Pell Grant are, are just going to be ways to get more money in students' pocket to get them through college. You've been listening to Catherine Meyer, who's a fellow in governance studies and higher education researcher at the Brookings Institution. Thank you so much for joining us today, Catherine, and for helping us understand the whole situation better. Thank you. 
Coming up next, we look at efforts to increase access and opportunity for more people to achieve success in education beyond high school. You can also join the conversation 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Universities aren't the only institutions working to address problems in higher education. A lot of outside organizations are too. And one of those organizations is the Lumina Foundation. It's a private foundation working to make opportunities for learning beyond high school available to all. And joining us now is Courtney Brown. She's the Vice President of Impact and Planning at the Lumina Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Courtney. Thanks for having me. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So you've been following along the conversation with Steve from Wisconsin and also with, with Catherine Meyer from the Brookings Institution. Anything that they said jumped out to you so far? Yeah, thank you. It's been a really great conversation, and I appreciate the efforts that, that Steve is doing to really help more students access uh, post-secondary education and agree with a lot of the, the points that Catherine raised. I think one of the things that that is important for us to discuss is who today's students are. So we've talked a lot about kids or the high school to college transition. And the reality is today's students that are in college are different than they were 20, 30 years ago. 37%, so a third of today's students are over 25, and 50% are actually financially independent of their parents. So they are going to school on their own um, with their own resources. And about a quarter of today's students have dependents. They have their own children. Um, And many of them are also working full time. So the experience of of today's students and how they access and continue in higher education is very different than a lot of the ways we talk about those college kids or how our policymakers talk about college kids. Well, and I love that you mentioned that the needs are different because time certainly has changed. I mean, I, I think about when I was going to college and I'm like, this is not the same experience as as what students are going through today. So some of the changes that you mentioned, you know, how, how is your organization addressing those changes or helping bring support to those students who, who need that help? Right. So as you said at the, the you know, beginning, we work to ensure that everyone has an opportunity to a high quality education beyond high school. And we actually set a goal for the nation that by 2025, 60% of Americans would have a degree or high quality credential. And actually Connecticut took a step further and and set a 70% uh, by 2025 goal. And and Connecticut is actually at 60% right now. And one of the reasons we did that, and Catherine spoke a little bit about this, but by 2031, uh, the Georgetown Center of Education and Workforce just put out a report yesterday, by 2031, 70% of the jobs in the United States are going to require some form of post-secondary after, you know, high school education. And so we really want to ensure that everyone has this opportunity. And so we work to, you know, first of all, make people aware of who today's students are, make people aware of what the barriers are that students are facing or, or people that haven't even entered higher ed are facing. And then try to think about the policies and practices that are going to enable more people to access that opportunity and actually succeed in getting a credential of value. 
And so I think the theme, too, with with the conversations today and also with the callers and comments that we received is it's not a clear path or it's not a straight path. You know, it's 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 usually a lot more complicated than you expected. So I know you work with other organizations as well. So how does that look like in terms of working with other people to help get the students the support that they need? Yeah, we work across that higher education landscape, and that includes uh, colleges, so two-year and four-year institutions, but it also includes organizations that provide certification. So, you know, a plumbing certification, a welding certification, and ensuring that those credentials that that people are getting are high quality, that they are leading to a good job that, that has a good pay, and that those credentials could actually lead to a pathway so that person can get a degree. We know from our research that the more education you have beyond high school, the you know wealthier you are, the healthier you are, the more likely you are to be engaged in your community, to have a job that has purpose. So additional years beyond um, you know beyond high school are benefiting Americans and they're benefiting our communities and our society. So we work to educate and then we work to help people change and improve those practices and policies. So I know earlier too we talked about the the various values of a degree and of course you know salary is a really important part of this you know earnings can you talk about like what other outcomes or results after getting a degree that we should look at to understand the value of post high school education Yeah so we just put out a report with Gallup that was education for what um because we talk a lot about income and in you know the data and I think Catherine uh, said this also that you're going to earn more um, with a degree than you would without a degree, about a million more dollars um, over the course of your lifetime. But money isn't everything. Um, and so the other things, we looked at about 52 variables and 50 of them are, are correlated with more education with every year beyond high school. And so some of those things are, you know, better well-being, better health status, uh, increased li- um, uh, lifetime, increased likelihood to do work that fits with your natural talents, voting participation, volunteerism, charitable giving. So all of these things, and they were actually true across all racial and ethnic backgrounds. Um, And in fact, higher for black Americans, uh, having more education led to better health, better wealth, um, better engagement in the society. And I've got about a question or two for you posing high schools, high schoolers versus students who enter college later in life. So we have adult learners. I think we have more of them now. How do you approach connecting with these two very different groups that want the same thing, which is a college degree? Uh, they, exactly. They are very different. Well, first of all, we have to understand what their barriers are. And we know cost is a huge barrier for, for both groups, whether they're 18 and thinking about college or 34 and thinking about a, a certificate or a, a two-year degree. So we understand cost is a barrier. We also have to understand that there are other barriers they're facing. So for adults, we know they're facing childcare. So what do we think about, you know, when a two-year or four-year institution offering childcare uh, for their students? Because, you know, it's nice to have classes on the weekends or in the evenings, but that's the time childcare is not available somewhere. So could colleges think about having childcare on campus to help those students? We also think about, um, food insecurity or housing insecurity and how do colleges help to to help those students provide those services. Um, the other thing that we're running into that we're seeing a, a large problem with uh, recently is emotional stress. Emotional stress has skyrocketed since the pandemic or during the pandemic and it continues to rise. 
So we also have to think about meeting students where they, where they are and providing more counseling services, um, both to address their emotional stress as well as their personal mental health um, concerns. We got about a minute here, but I want to ask, is there anything in particular that you would love our listeners to take away from our conversation today? You know, I think the most important thing is to understand that college is worth it. We have the data. We know that having a credential or a degree beyond high school is absolutely essential to a person's well-being and their health and their wealth. Um, But we have to address the question that Americans are now questioning the com- or have questions about the confidence they have in higher ed to deliver on it. And so we have to work with higher ed institutions with our policymakers to improve higher ed so it is delivering more affordable, more accessible uh, types of programs so students can actually complete and then access a better life and a better job. You've been listening to Courtney Brown, who's the Vice President of Impact and Planning at Lumina Foundation. Thank you so much, Courtney, for joining us today. Thank you. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by our intern, Joey Morgan, and Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Gina Matruda. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>